morning. Yeah, it's still fighting the, the plague. Who here has in the last like month had upper respiratory stuff hit them or their family? I feel like it's like not as many as I would have thought. Uh, if you have kids in school, if I went to any school and said that, you know, raising their hand, those schools are petri dishes, I say. Well, um, a few, I want to say last year at some point, I made a reference to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that you might remember. Maybe some of you went and listened to it. It was a, um, a dissection of the, um, let me see if I can get slides to move forward. I'm not seeing them back there. Oh, technology. You are a fickle thing, are you not? Ah. Notes are notes are not coming up. Um. <laughs> we could A have me run back there, or B, we could see how your pastor does with zero notes completely off the top of his head. Ooh. <laughs> the challenge has been uh, been thrown. Okay, well, <laughs> when that comes, uh, Jeff, when it comes to the scripture, you'll just have to, have to get me there. I can kind of try to look back and, and see what, what we got going on here. Anyway, um, I'll try. We'll see how it goes. Uh, this will be fun. Uh, and if it goes poorly, you have to forgive me. And if it goes well, you have to get me a best pastor in the world mug uh, this week and drop it off at my, at my desk at some point while I am there. Um, so, you know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, it was a dissection of, of Mark Driscoll, who is a, you know, a megachurch pastor. Um, Mars Hill was the largest church in the country for a while, around the, the early 2010s, 11, 12, 13 or so. And then in 2014, because of the failures of leadership, eventually um, Mark Driscoll resigned and the church crumbled almost overnight to the point where it doesn't exist anymore. All of its former buildings are now their own churches that were bought by other plants and just the building was used. And so Mars Hill as an entity really doesn't exist. Um, but it was at the height of things that things were going well. And the, the podcast's point, the reason it's kind of cool to listen to, is it's really a leadership podcast that looks at the story of the rise and eventually the fall of that church and ask the question of how could this happen? Because the issues that plagued that church were, were toxic leadership, the berating of people. There were probably hundreds of people that were traumatized and psychologically damaged in the wake of Mark Driscoll and his utter failures in leadership as a pastor. And, and the, the thing is, it went on for years. If, if I had done one fraction of the things, if I was doing a fraction of those things, you better believe you or Presbytery would have me out of this position within a matter of weeks, not years. But this kept going on and on and on, and it was allowed to continue, and, and elders failed to step in and, and do their job and remove him and other people that were toxic, and it just created this environment. And, and really, the, the question is hours of podcasts to answer, how could this happen? And, and the reality is we, we know how it happened. And there's a hint that's given, it's kind of a third of the way in where they're interviewing. They got a sound clip of Mark speaking at a leadership conference with some, some folks offline. And what he essentially says is, is something along the lines of, look, um, my church is growing at a rate larger than anyone else in the world. So how can you tell me that I'm right or wrong when I know that I'm doing things the way I'm supposed to be doing, right? The measure for success was growth and the church was growing exponentially. At its height, it had about 13,000 people attending weekly services. 
and hundreds of thousands online. Like 13,000 actual people, butts in seats in church. That's crazy, right? Until it completely crumbled. The church was doing well financially. They were gobbling up real estate and campuses seemed to be opening all over the place. They were cross state lines in terms of the reach of the church. Yes, it started in the Seattle area, but there were campuses in like two or three other states that surrounded as they just continued to spread and things were going well. And, and here's the thing. When things go well like that, there's a tendency to forgive a whole lot of wrong and a whole lot of issues and to overlook some of the toxicity. And so what happened at Mars Hill was he was allowed to do things in leadership that berated people, that belittled people, that spoke poorly and berated women specifically, that caused untold pain to families, all in the name of church growth. Now, we, we look at that as an example and we say, well, that's crazy. That would never happen here. But the reality is that within the church at large, this has been a kind of a trend as history has progressed. If you look at times within history where the church has done remarkably well in terms of growth, attendance, uh, prosperity, economic to-do, the budgets are being met and all those things, that's usually when the, the leadership creeps in that allows some crazy things to happen. Because stuff gets overlooked when things are going well. Right? If we all of a sudden started adding numbers here at Stowe Pres and next week we had 400 people in worship, you would be far less likely to question my or any elder's leadership than you would if all of a sudden we had three every week. Right? There's, a, there's a delineator there that causes things to ebb and flow like that. And, and the church has always been this way. It's a very weird trend historically. When the church thrives economically and in numbers, it tends to do poorly in orthodoxy and leadership. And then the opposite is also true. In, in history, in times when the church has been under pressure and struggled profoundly, tends to be when faith rises up and orthodoxy increases and the church is more and more looking like the way that God intended it to do. Persecution tends to do that. You would think it'd be the opposite but that's not how things go. Right? In the times that we're looking at today, that's kind of what is happening in a sense. We have a, we have a Mars Hill situation happening in ancient Jerusalem. And so we've been looking for the last few weeks at this series called Messengers of the Twelve Minor Prophets, and we're in the third week today. And so we're looking at Amos. And as last week we looked at Joel that we knew really nothing about, Amos is quite the opposite. We know way more about Amos uh, than we probably should. Maybe. Nope. Tech, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm not going to make you stand yet. We're going to have a larger passage where I make you stand. But this is just the introduction. This is the very first word, first verse of Amos. And we learn a whole lot about the context of Amos, the dating of Amos, and all that good stuff. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So the word of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So we know that Amos was among the shepherds, and sometimes that phrase gets used in a pastoral sense. In this case, it's literal. Amos was a shepherd. He was a farm boy, right? And he lived in an area called Tekoa. Tekoa was a border town, essentially, of the northern and the southern kingdom when they split. 
in the 900s. They split, and so like it, it, he was technically living in the southern kingdom, but he could have thrown a pebble at the northern kingdom from his house where he lived. Tekoa was one of those border towns that really could have gone either way. We're also given the time of, of when he did stuff based on the kings, and so we again follow the pattern of many of the prophets during the king of Uzziah in Judah, which is the south, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that would make it Jeroboam the second, not the Jeroboam that actually you know, was there for the split for the first, but the second, uh, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We have no idea what earthquake they're talking about. There's not a reputable scholar out there who will tell you that they have a slight clue as to what earthquake. We don't have a recording of earthquakes within the time frame. And so we can assume that the earthquake was something that happened that was actual. And the people that would have read Amos in that time frame would have been able to date the exact writing. Because they'd be like, oh yeah, the earthquake. Right? There's, there's things that we have in our own cultural context that we would understand time reference wise. Maybe the burning of the river. Right? It's something that no one outside of this area would understand, but people here would get. Oh, yeah, I know when that was. Right, so the earthquake dates it very precisely to the people. It doesn't help us. But the kings do help us. And so what we can know is that this was happening somewhere in the vicinity of about 10 years before the Assyrian uh, army, 10, 20 years before the Assyrian army invades and takes over the northern kingdom when Jeroboam II was ruling. We also know from history a little bit about Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. And so Jeroboam II is known as simultaneously the best king in the north and the worst king in the north. He's the, the best king in the north from a standpoint of earthly economics. Under Jeroboam, the northern kingdom of Israel thrived more than any other time in terms of prosperity and economics, things were going great there. Trade was booming. He had made pacts with a bunch of surrounding nations. Everything was awesome. If you had a portfolio, it was way up. You would re-elect Jeroboam if there was such a thing as electing kings at that time. Right? Stuff was prosperous. The cities were being built up. And even from an outward appearance worship perspective, things were going very well. There was regular worship. They had built themselves new temples uh, they had interspersed some weird stuff. There were some golden calves in there and all that kind of stuff. But you would have looked from the outside in and seen regular worship of the Lord happening. You would have seen things that look good and healthy. But spiritually, Jeroboam was among one of the worst. Because he, in an effort to bring all of these trades in, all of this economic growth, befriended all of these other religions and allowed them to come in and intersperse and intermix. And so the worship of God, of his people, was being muddied down with the worship of all kinds of other gods. And stuff was happening during the time of Jeroboam that would be so appalling to the Lord we couldn't even imagine, right? Everything looked peachy, but under the covers, the church was not doing well. God's people were not obedient, not faithful. Stuff was a mess. And so Amos sees this happening. Amos is seeing this come in some small ways, like he has friends that are poor, and he's seeing that the poor are kind of oppressed and mistreated in the northern kingdom, and he sees all these things, and the Lord calls him to prophesy against the north. And so Amos is a prophet that is before the exile and in the northern kingdom speaking against them, and they are, as you know, are taken over by Assyria first, and then later, years later, 
Babylon takes over the southern kingdom and decimates them. And so Amos is a northern prophet pre-exile. He's warning the people of judgment to come, yet to come. And God uses Amos to do this in a a truly unique and beautiful way. Amos has a a, a perfect strategy that we've seen a couple times in Scripture before. Um, Nathan does this to David when he's confronting him. He, He starts with a pronouncement of judgment of a whole bunch of the nations that surround Israel. And so one of the things Israel had was pride in the way they functioned and the way their worship was better than other areas, the way their economics were better. And so not only did they, you know, lack zeal for the Lord, but they puffed themselves up and they thought themselves better than all the other nations. And in their head, God must love them more than all the other nations. And so Amos starts his book with this genius cycle of judgments against all the other nations first. And so we have things like this. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they have threshed Gilead. Then he does the same thing for three transgressions of Gaza, for three transgressions of Tyre, for three transgressions of Edom, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, for three transgressions of Moab. And what happens is, as the Israelites in the north are hearing these, they're going, yeah, oh yeah. Because look, That nation, Moab, I am going to judge them. They have forsaken me in this way. I will deal with them harshly. And the people of Israel are looking at what Amos is saying, the the words of the Lord coming through Amos to them and saying, yes, do that. They are not as good as we are. There's a cheering that happens as these judgments are pronounced on all of the surrounding nations and kingdoms. And then it gets a little bit uncomfortable. We see this starting in the second um, chapter of Amos in verse 4. And and at first it gets a little bit subtle, and then he goes full hammer. So here's here's the word of of Amos, chapter 2, verses 4, through a couple verses into chapter 3. And I would invite us to stand as we read this together. After pronouncing all the nations, it gets a little uncomfortable and a little too close to home because he starts to send pronouncements on Judah. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, so I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And then it gets harsh. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down besides every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink of wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose heights was like the height of the cedars and who was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was also I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. 
Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves pressed down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So he flips the script. Amos is judging all these other nations, and they're going, yeah! And then it's another nation, yeah, they stink, judge them, get them. And then he goes to Judah, and they go, I, I mean, yeah, we, st- I mean, we split, we still don't like them, so I guess you can judge them too. It's a little close to home, but all right. And then comes Israel, right? And so Amos does this really well, and not only this, but the judgments against all the other nations, including Judah, are like a small little paragraph And then the judgments against Israel are the entirety of what we just read. It's more than three times longer to judge Israel than it is to judge anyone else. And so he's building them up to a point where they're like, yes, you're just. Judgment is just. You are worthy. You deserve it. Everything you say is gold. Wait a minute. What? Us too? And worse than anyone else? Okay. Um, And they're kind of stunned because they don't have anything that they can say back to the Lord. Because they've been cheering for the judgment all this time, and then when it gets turned on them, right? As I mentioned, Nathan does this to David, right? When he's trying to confront David and he's terrified, he tells a story of another person who did the things that David did, and then David's response is, that person should be killed. And Nathan goes, well, yeah, that's, that's you. Oh. Oh, man. What am I going to say, what am I going to do? How am I possibly going to be able to combat that? And so Amos pronounces this judgment among the people. What are some of the things they're guilty of? They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They're guilty of not caring for the poor among them. They're guilty of taking the love of God that he gives to them, the way that he called them out of the land of Egypt, the way that he brought them out even though they didn't deserve it, right? They serve a God who took them out of oppression into freedom, and then they in turn neglect to free the oppressed among them, to help those who are poor and needy. Beyond that, even those who suffer with physical ailments, they don't deal with those as well. Those who trample the head of the poor and dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They're just kind of abandoned and cast to the side in the name of raising up the economy and prosperity. The poor get trampled on so that the rich can get richer. A man and his father go into the same girl. We have all kinds of sexual promiscuity that is happening. Some stuff that would disgust us even in the movies today right, is going down. And all of that sexual stuff, by the way, is in the service of one of the gods, the god of Asherah, which is the god of sex in that time frame. When, when they started to mix their god with all the other gods of the nations that surrounded them, you know, there's gods like Baal that came in, but there's also gods like Asherah, who are the god of sex. And so there's actual sexual acts that are committed in a worshipful context within Israel because they're blending all their faiths together. Everything goes Everyone's right. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Sound familiar? 
right? That's what's going on there. And so stuff is allowed that should never have been allowed. They're laying themselves down aside the altar and garments, and they're drinking wine in the house of the Lord of those who have been fined. So they're, they're stealing, and they're consuming and desecrating the altar of the Lord in the process of it. The place that is supposed to be the, the most worshipful place is becoming essentially a town drunken hub where people just get together and booze with booze that's stolen. It's not even theirs. And they're messing around in ways they shouldn't. And so the Lord pronounces judgment upon them. He says, look, you think you look so great, but you have no idea. And then if we're wondering why, why would the Lord do that? What's the, the judgment behind the judgment? We get this little hint in the beginning of chapter 3 that we finished reading. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. You only have I known. What God is saying to them is, look, all this stuff, this, this disobedience, it wouldn't be so bad. But, but the thing that's driving it is an unbelievable amount of hypocrisy because I rescued you. I called you to be my holy people, my holy nation. I could have called any of these kingdoms that are around you now. You don't think I could have used any of the tribes? You, you think Abraham is the one I had to go to? You think Abraham was the only guy alive that I could have made worthy, that I could have used as, as a creating of my people? It could have as, as well been any of these other kingdoms that I judged before yours. But I chose you, you only. And so God is saying, look, I picked you. I essentially attached myself to you. I created you as my people. And for all of your life, I have been faithful to you. And yet you don't return that faith to me. What I ask of you is that I make you my people. I love you when you're unlovable. I give you everything when you don't deserve anything. And then in turn, you, the Christian life, means that you go out and you live that way towards those who are around you. You take this nature and character of God that I bestow upon you as my people and you then reflect it back. We are supposed to look like Jesus to the world around us that doesn't know him. We are supposed to love them how he loves us. And Israel doesn't do that. He goes, you were poor, I made you rich. What are you doing for those who are poor? Do you think for a second the way you're acting makes you look anything like me? No, it doesn't. And so he pronounces judgment. And we know that God's threat isn't an idle threat because we see the Assyrian army come in and just decimate the Israelites. The northern kingdom falls in spectacular passion. And the Assyrians are some really, really nasty people. The way that they brought those people out of their land and enslaved them was not fun. They would take these fish hooks, right, which the Lord prophesies about a little later in Amos, and they would actually take the, the women and they would pierce them through their lip and drag them for hundreds of miles to the destination they wanted them to go to, like cattle. The judgment that the Lord pronounces and carries out against his people Israel is harsh to a degree that we don't even understand. Right? So what do we do with something like this? Right? Because here's the thing. We, we don't carry prophecy like this into our context today in a literal way. Right? Amos isn't saying to us the same exact thing that he's saying to Israel. Right? We don't have 
we don't read this and we go, okay, there's an army somewhere, an empire, that if we don't shape up somehow, is going to come and, and take us over and carry us off by fish hooks. That's not, that's not the issue. But here is the issue, and here's the undertone of what, what undergirds Amos' prophecy to the north and what undergirds the Lord's prophecy to us as God's people today. And it's this. The Lord cares way more about your holiness than he cares about your comfort. A lot of us are comfortable in church. I can't tell you over the years how many people I've had come to every church I've ever been in. Well, you know, they transfer from somewhere else. Well, you know, what brings you here? Oh, we don't like our church. And, and, and here's, here's a phrase that I hear all the time. I'm just not being fed. Right? We consume church. And we do it in our lives, too. This isn't a church or a Stowe Press thing, right? We just become consumers of God. We pray more when we have need than when we have plenty. We're quicker to ask than to offer gratitude or to fall on our knees and ask that the Lord would change the way we are to line, line up more than how he is. Right? We don't want to do those things because those are hard things. We would rather come and sit, preferably in a comfortable seat, and hear music, preferably the way that we like to hear it and hear a message that rivets us. So that when we go to lunch, we can have something to talk about and forget by Tuesday. Right? We, we tend to function in the same way. Right? Now, are we as grotesque as the Israelites in the north were in this, this description of Amos here? No, not necessarily. But we have the heart issues that they have too. And here's what God says to us. I'm, I will pronounce judgment upon you in order to shape you up in any way I have to to get you to be holy as I am holy. To shape you into the person that I want you to be. If you think for a second that the Lord isn't willing to cause you pain to shape you, you got another thing coming. The Lord is very uninterested in your earthly comforts. Very uninterested. That's not something we like to think about or hear, but the Lord cares very little about your earthly comforts because he has a priority of your heart in an eternal sense, and he will shape that in a way that you wouldn't believe. One more thing. The book of Amos, as most prophets, ends with a ray of hope. And it's really important when we talk about judgment passages that we understand this. It ends with a ray of hope because as Assyria comes in and decimates Israel and they're exiled, they do return eventually. The Lord relents after a season of punishment and judgment and a remnant returns and Jerusalem is rebuilt. We look at major books like Nehemiah or Ezra and we see the rebuilding of, of, of Israel that, that is spelled out in those books, right? We see the temple and the walls are rebuilt not to the same level of glory, but they are rebuilt in the way that the Lord wants them to. And so the Lord eventually relents to even the northern and the southern kingdoms after Assyria and Babylon judges them. And it's something that we need to carry into a message like this in our own context. Because here's the truth. God will judge you. And God will judge you harshly. And God will give you pain to shape you into holiness. But we are not talking about an ultimate judgment here. We're not talking about a, the Lord wants to shape you up, and so he'll send you to hell. That's not what we're getting at, right? This isn't a salvation conversation. This is a punishment conversation, not a forsaking. 
If you notice the pattern of the Old Testament, the Lord punishes his people, the Lord judges his people, the Lord puts his people through hardship in order to shape them, but the Lord never forsakes his people. And in the same way, the Lord never forsakes us. He holds us as God's people. If you are under Christ, you are secure in eternal life. But in this life, when we walk in ways that don't glorify the Lord, he will pull you down in order to shape you up. That doesn't mean every struggle is God's punishment against you. Sometimes evil is just evil. Right? You didn't get that medical diagnosis necessarily because you did something wrong. It could be just because the world has sin in it and it's an evil place. And sometimes terrible stuff just happens to us because we don't live on the other side of the perfected creation. But there are times where the Lord puts us under hardship in order to shape us up, in order to say, look, wake up, O comfort creature, and walk in the way that I call you to walk. Our lives are meant to reflect God's mercy and grace and love and glory given to us as we live out that truth in the world outside of here. We are supposed to look like little messiahs. Not in the sense that we save anybody, but in the sense that when people see us, they should see a reflection of who God is. So ask yourself, in your Monday to Saturday life, do people see the Lord reflected in who you are? Or are we just a thriving earthly economy that's dead in the inside? This is a warning that God gives to every church of his and to every person individually. This is something we pray through and think through as people on our own and as a body corporately. That We might seek to be a church that is faithful to all God calls us to, even at the expense of our own comforts, our own prosperity. Because I have news for you. You serve a God who is more prosperous than you could ever be. We serve a God whose bank account has a symbol like this, infinity. And if you put all your eggs in his basket, if you trust him with your life, not just your wallet, but your life, if you trust him in the conversations that you're scared to have, if you trust him in the things that you want, but you know you should just be giving up or forsaking and investing in other places, if you trust him with your life, you have a treasure stored up in heaven more than you could ever acquire in this lifetime or 10 lifetimes. The Lord calls us to take an inventory of himself. That's Moses' ministry to the northern kingdom. It's his ministry to us as we read from his word that the Lord has given him to speak. How are we doing? And it's a word of comfort. If the Lord is putting you through a season of trial, maybe ask yourself, man, what are you up to? Rather than, oh, woe is me. So what part of me are you trying to kill in order to bring something bigger and greater out? Maybe God's doing something very specific in your life and the lives of those around you, right? Let's pray. God, we are a grateful people. We don't like judgment. Same way that kids don't like to be grounded or put in time out. But God, we are your children and you are our Abba Father. At times, 
you've got to put us in time out on the steps. To slow us down, to cause us to think, to reflect, to, to reprioritize, and to shift our focus back to you. God, we praise you that you are a God who cares enough about us to shift our focus back to you, to draw us back to you. You don't just set the world spinning and then wait until we die and give us a report card. You are constantly at work as a surgeon on our hearts, fixing us, improving us, growing us, shaping us into the people you want us to be. We praise you for that truth and that reality. We love you. And all of God's people said, Amen.